0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momming Autism Podcast, where we are providing a positive platform for parents to share their stories about raising special needs children. We are your hosts, Amanda DeLuca and Katie MD, and today we are pleased to bring you another awesome mom and blog friend, Deidre Leuenberg. Welcome Deidre, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. This is so fun.
0: So Deidre, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and um, your son's name is Wyatt, Wyatt's diagnosis, and just sort of your journey this far?
1: Sure. So um, I'm Deidre, and um, I have three boys. I've been married to kind of my high school sweetheart. He was in college. I was in high school. But you know, those are just small details (laughs) for, um, gosh, I think we're on... 18 years now we've been together, so, um, we've been through a lot. Um, our boys are all two years apart. Emmett is 10, Wyatt is 8, and Owen is 6. Um, so Wyatt, um, my middle guy was diagnosed, um, right before the age of 4. So we're already, like, 4 years into it. You know, we're in a, a much different spot. Um, and... I actually went to school to be a speech and language pathologist. So, you know, it's a unique part of my story. And um, I worked mostly part time until I had kids, and then I would kind of work off and on. Um, And then when I knew that something was kind of going on with Wyatt when he was three, um, you know, and we all kind of have a similar story sometimes, right? Where it's just like, that two to three year age is just—it was really gray for a, a while, you know. And I really didn't know what was going on. Um, being a therapist actually kind of muddied that a little bit for me, you know. Is in terms of your child having delays, you know, when you're a therapist, that's kind of different, you know. There's, there's, and there's the mom denial, and I feel like when you're a therapist, there's therapist denial and there's therapist guilt on top of that, so. You know I always say I think if I wasn't a therapist I might have done things differently I might have reached out sooner I might have you know I didn't have any friends at the time who were in a similar boat you know I do now and and you guys know um, Idra Darst is one of my, you know, really good friends, and gosh, I wish I would have known her back then because it is, it's a unique road um, mm-hmm. to be a therapist and to um, have a, a child with different needs and and delays. You kind of think, oh, well, this shouldn't be happening to me, or oh, I I should be I should have an upper hand here. I should have an edge, right? And. You don't have an edge, <laughs> not with your own child, you know?
0: Well, and that's the thing. I mean, everything um, probably for you is very clinical and very routine and there are checklists and, um, you know, why would you apply those to your own child? That's your work, that's not your home life. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to see that. You know, I drove myself crazy at the time because I could not see him any other way than I see him as my child, you know? I. I can't apply that to him. I can't put him through a checklist and be completely unbiased, you know? There were things I think that other people saw that I didn't see, you know? And um, you go through things differently. I think the denial piece is huge. And as a clinician, you don't have that bias. You don't have denial or emotions attached to it when you're seeing something in another child, you know, in in one of your clients or students. So, yeah, that that beginning part was really interesting. And I think that um, some of it helped, you know, like obviously um, I had techniques and, you know, I, I would know how to help him with certain things. And I might have had more knowledge in terms of language development and what was normal, what was not normal and things like that. So I kind of knew, you know, early on um, where those kind of red flags were. And, and I could talk to professionals a little bit easier, too. I always tell the story of when um, he was 18 months and he had a lot of ear infections. I had two different professionals telling me two completely different things. And luckily, it was related to language. So I was kind of able to be, you know, that person in the middle to be like, well, you guys are both wrong. Why are you telling parents? You know, I had... Uh, had 50 words at 18 months and I had the pediatrician saying um oh he's advanced and I take him to the ENT because we were thinking about tubes and I have the ENT saying does he have 100 words yet because if he doesn't then he's speech delayed and I'm thinking okay those are completely different answers and actually you know 50 words is pretty you know average for an 18 month old so I'm like You know, you both are not (laughs) really on the money. You should be leaving that to an SLP, by the way. Right, Um, right. You know, so some of those things were advantages, right? And just kind of being more comfortable with IEPs and the process. But, I mean, as you know, um, it's a completely different world when you're on the parent side. And in that regard, um, it's not any easier. You know, we don't have an edge we, we don't, you know, you don't, you're not able to be your own child's therapist. So, you know, I mean, that was kind of a learning curve for me and it took some adjustment. Um, and just to realize like, it's okay that another speech therapist work with him, you know, it, it really kind of mm-hmm. took the pressure off. Um, and, you know, I, I had to kind of adapt. And And now that I do have other friends who are in my similar shoes, it's, it's comforting to know that we both kind of went through those feelings. You know, I, I wish that we would have had each other back then, but um, just to know that also really helps.
0: Yeah. I, um, one of my side hustles is I'm a master IEP coach. So I sit at the table for a lot of families, and mm-hmm. to sit at a table for another child. Is one ball game. Mm -hmm. To sit at the table and advocate for my own child, I can't take the emotion out of that. And I don't know that I ever will be able to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. I rely on my husband a lot um, for support in that aspect. And I have to tell him before we go into these meetings this is me um, talking to you like Jackson were my client. I need you to remind me of these things at the table when I'm Jackson's mom only. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm It is, it's, it's two different hats completely, um, you know, and I used to think when I was a therapist sitting at the IEP table, you know, I used to look at these parents and, and I've always been like an empath, you know, like I've just, I, I feel the emotions and I feel for people. I, you know, I always felt for the parents and I always looked at them like, how are they not a blubbering mess right now? Like, how are they okay? Like, you know, and some of my work was at middle school level. So, you know, I mean, by that point, you know, you're a little bit more into the accepting phase and, you know, they're used to it, you know, a little bit more, but even so, I would always look at them like, they're so strong. I don't know if I could ever be this strong. I would be a mess and spoiler alert, I kind of am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, yep. it's hard to sit um, at that table and it's, it's not just a name on a paper. You know, that child is your whole life. And it's hard to hear, you know, some of those things about your child. And, you know, I think as parents, you know, and we all talk about this, just um, reading through those documents, even not being at the meeting, is difficult because we kind of live our lives putting a positive spin on things, right? And that's how we survive. That's how we enjoy our lives still is that we're always looking for the positive, we're always finding the joy, you know? And an IEP document is not intended to do that. <laughs> it's, it's looking at the things that need, need work, you know? Mm-hmm. And the things that are um, not maybe where they should be, whatever that means, you know? Um, and that's just not how we operate a lot of times as moms and it's, it's hard to hear.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to um, read it, it's another thing to hear someone saying it out loud to you at a table
1: mm-hmm, yeah, yeah.
0: So Deidra, how did having a child on the spectrum change you as a therapist?
1: Um, well, like I said, I you know, I stayed home for the most part once I knew that why it was going to um, you know need me to be flexible. you know, I'm like, I'm gonna be running to therapies and all this, you know, all these things, and it's hard to hold down a job when you have a child with the special needs sometimes, you know, and just making it all work. Um, So I wanted to stay home and I wanted to be flexible. Um, But luckily I was able to do some work, you know, post diagnosis, especially once we kind of got settled into like what worked for him. And, you know, I would take um, little jobs here and there. A lot of times like maternity leaves is where I could kind of help out and, you know, work for a few months and um, work around the boys schedule and things like that. And so it was kind of nice to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, completely different in terms of, you know, when I'm when I'm looking at a child, when I'm working with a child, you know, it's I can picture what I would do with my own. You know, mm-hmm. I know, you know, we're gonna work on things that are the most functional and, and that are gonna help that child the most. And sitting at an IEP table when the parent is just kind of glazed over and confused or maybe emotional, like, (laughs) I'm the one kind of reaching out and being like, oh, I know exactly how you feel, you know, and and I I just think it's important to speak to those kind of things. You know, I'm always, I was always the first one to point out like, you know, the positives and and what's really amazing about that child. And, you know, I know amazing educators, that I've worked with and that work with my child, of course they always point out the positives, you know. I mean that's part of an IEP that should be happening regardless, you know. It's not just something cold and clinical into the facts, but when you're a parent and you understand exactly what they're crying about and what they're worried about and kind of, you know, we're always thinking about the future and, uh, you know, there's just that extra emotion tied to it, that's when things would change for me at the table, you know, because there's just no way for me not to feel that and not relate to them and not resonate with that, you know, because I'm the only one sitting at that table a lot of times who knows exactly what she's saying and can maybe speak to that for her, you know, or or him Mm -hmm. as parents. So maybe I got myself into trouble a few times (laughs) because, you know, you're supposed to stick to the facts. Um, but I just found myself being much more empathetic.
0: I, um, there's, I, I call it an old school and a new school IEP and a lot of old school um, IEPs say what a child cannot do and what their deficits are. And I think a new wave that's coming in these new school IEPs, they also tell you what the child can do. Yeah. Uh, maybe you're waiting on the child, uh, you're working on the child to be waiting and um, they can't wait for a minute but you can put in there, they can wait for 30 seconds. That's important for a teacher to know, Mm -hmm. that's um, acknowledging that the child is developing a skill. So I think um, we are seeing this shift to new age, um, new school, whatever you wanna call it, IEPs. And I think that's really important for parents to look for.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So Katie, diagnosis kind of changed your work um,
2: life as well, correct? Definitely. From when, what our life looked like before Avery was diagnosed to what it looks like now is two different Katie's and two completely different lives. Uh, Before Avery was diagnosed, I was the parent sitting, you know, in therapy or sitting in a meeting um, for Avery, figuring out what we needed to do to help him and support him the best. And I was the mom that was crying. And like someone would say the tiniest little thing and I was just a mess. And then once Avery, pretty much just before he officially got his paper signed and and diagnosed all the way from then to, to now, and he's going to be 10 here coming up, um, I found my voice, I, I started advocating not only for my own you know family and Avery, but also advocating on a bigger scale. Um, right across the province in Saskatchewan and kind of found my footing and I never want to go back it sounds weird but like I never want to go back fully to the mom that had no voice and that just literally agreed with whatever the person on the other side of the table was saying because I did for a very long time whatever they would say and whatever their plan was for Avery I was just like okay right, like I just I had no I had no opinion I had really no voice or anything because I was so alone and so isolated and so just afraid and scared what our future was going to look like that there was almost like this turning point with Avery's journey where he wasn't getting anything he he wasn't you know getting support you know through his IEP Everything was such a big mess that it really was one meeting that defined and changed our whole entire life where I was like, no, no, like I'm actually the person. I'm, I'm the writer of this story. I'm the person that Avery needs to use my voice because he has no voice. And I'm going to start saying all of the things and this is what's going to happen. So there are times where I am still hesitant to use my words or hesitant to use my voice in certain situations when it comes to Avery. Um, But our life, it just took this huge change and I always say, you know, to other families or even to my husband, it was just that one moment, that one moment, that one decision of deciding that we were the writers of our story and of Avery's life, that our story was in our control and if we wanted Avery to get help and if we wanted him to have support and if I wanted to advocate for other families and help them navigate you know this autism journey it was completely in my control and I was able to do that no one was stopping me so it was amazing and it's it's empowering and I love being able to connect with other families and explain to them and and show them that If they want their child to get help, if they want their child to get support, your very first step is to find your voice. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. So Deidre, how did your background change your course of action for Wyatt um, once you received a diagnosis or once um, you kind of had that difference of opinion between um, your pediatrician and your ENT
1: Well, you know, I don't know if it was really, I don't know if it had a lot to do, honestly, with me having a therapist background or not. I mean, I think that, um, I think after a while I realized that I just had to rely on I know would be best for Wyatt and what would be best for our family and what works for him and what doesn't work for him and, and just learning to trust my gut, you know, um, Mm -hmm. Of course, I, you know, threw myself into the research to see, like, you know, what was best for him and what are other families doing? And, you know, like, how we all just want to know how do we best help our child, you know? Um, And just kind of throwing them into things and and just seeing what worked. Um, we, We did some ABA therapy and, you know, looked for different companies and just kind of were seeing, like, how. How he's responding to things, and and just what would be best for him, um, and you know it's been four years. It's been it's been a journey, and, and he's changing. Um, but you know we've gotten to a point where you also realize that you know it's it's not going to be the same, and and all your kids are going to be different, and there's a lot of things that you know we know traditionally don't work for our kids, right? Like we do need to adapt and they think differently and they're, you know, all different. But at the same time, you know, we're at the point in our journey now where we're kind of realizing also like, yes, there are things that are different, but at that child's core, what they need from you as a parent is really no different than what your other children need or any other child needs, you know? I mean, I think, it's overwhelming to parents in the beginning to think like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do this. Like, how do I support him? What do I do? How do I help? Like, you know, I just want my kid to have the best life, you know, and to help them reach their full potential. How do I do that? It's nerve wracking, you know? Um, but we're, we're kind of settling in now, I feel like, and um, realizing, you know, what he needs from us Obviously, you know what Katie said, you need to stand up for your child and advocate and make sure that their needs are met. Um, but also just figuring them out and how they learn best and what they need and what kind of supports work and and the rest just kind of comes to you, right? Like deep down, he needs what, what his brothers need from us. He needs mm-hmm. that love. He needs that connection. He likes so many things that any other child does, you know, so I think it takes a little bit of the pressure off too. Of of course, we still want him to be supported and we want him to reach his full potential. But, um, you know, I think it just took me some time to kind of take the therapist and just look at him as a mom and look to my husband and say, you know, how, how do we want to do this, you know, with him? And I think I it's think... different for every child.
0: That mom gut is never wrong, though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Our pediatrician, at um, 12 months, we started expressing concerns for Jackson. Um, He only had about 8 to 12 words, um, and then we lost them all. He wouldn't transition from baby food to table food. He stopped responding to his name. He was lining up toys. and our pediatrician said, he's a boy. He'll talk when he's ready. Mm. You are you are wasting your money by asking for a referral to an audiologist to check his hearing. Um, you are searching for a diagnosis. You're a first time mom. Your child does not have autism. He doesn't flap his hands in front of his face. I know autism. Oh, wow. Um, and I said, I am I am begging you to help me. Um, we are going to start receiving speech therapy at home because he's lost all of his communication. Um, Why would it not make sense to go to an audiologist and check to make sure that there isn't hearing loss before we start speech therapy and get nowhere. And Mm -hmm. um, my husband, um, not sided with the doctor, but believed the doctor that he was a boy and he would talk when he was ready. Um, And it took us several years for him to say, your mom gut was spot on, spot on. And thank Mm -hmm. goodness you pushed. But it was one of the first times, like Katie said, that I realized I had to use my voice because no one else was going to help me.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's funny too, how sometimes, you know, the spouse reacts completely differently, you know? And I think we see that a lot with um, families, especially with autism, you know, that maybe the parents are on two different pages. And I know, especially like in the early days, Um, you know, those initial IEPs, I did all of the talking, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, this this was my wheelhouse, right? And, like, I feel like sometimes the team would look over and and be like, Matt, do you have anything to say? And it's just (laughs) like, I got this. (laughs) Right. You know, and um, so I think that's, it was helpful and that I felt comfortable and I, you know, I felt like I had to be, like, in control of it and I got this, I got this, right? I mean, there's just that level of control and familiarity with me but um you know at some point too that that can be an extra burden like that we feel like we have to make all the decisions you know and like we're making all the hard decisions and and the husband's just kind of going along with it whatever you think and it's just like that's a lot of pressure too Mm -hmm. so you know we've kind of had to you know and I'm sure you have something similar with your husband too where you know you kind of have to work out that balance of like hey this is our our decisions together and I don't mean to take over the whole IP. I I need your input you know I mean just kind of working those things out too and and taking some of the pressure off of like you know some of these are, are major life decisions do we go this route do we go that route those are big things to decide he um
0: my husband, I don't think, has missed an IEP meeting yet. And if so, it's been one where it was like a follow-up. Um, but he'll look at me and say, are you okay? Is this okay? Are we okay? Because I get so worked up. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like, are, are you going to make it through this right now? <laughs> yeah. But um, we we delegate. Um, he takes care of insurance um, and paperwork and um, all of the calling people on the phone and being on hold. And I take care of all the in-person things because that's the balance that we need. And we didn't have that at the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that was a lot of stress where um, I felt like he wanted me to handle everything. He felt like I needed to handle everything because it gave me control. Mm -hmm. So finding that balance was very, very helpful for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's another part of the journey too. You know, I mean, just working all of that out. I also feel like we're very different in terms of how we come to decisions. Like he, he can just make one so quickly and be like, nope, I think this is the right way to go. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait, wait. I need to think about this for at least 30 days and just go back and forth and just, you know, just weigh all the options. Are are you sure about that? Like, how did you make that in in five seconds? I really think you need to think about it some more. That's how different we are, you know? I am the most indecisive person ever. And he's just very like, comes to that executive decision like that, and be like, nope, I think that's what we need to do. Okay.
0: (laughs) But I think that's the balance you need also.
1: Oh, yeah. It's very, very yin and yang, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. So, Deidre, um, you said between two and three, Wyatt was in this kind of gray area, and then you got your diagnosis at four. So what did he look like then, and what does um, Wyatt look like now?
1: So uh, he... You know, before that 18 month time when we were kind of looking at, you know, his words and all of that, he was very, a very typical baby. I mean, and I think that that was a hard part too when it came to like the denial that I was speaking about because it really hit me out of nowhere. It wasn't one of those things where, you know, you hear a lot of moms talking about like, I just knew from the day they were born, they were different as a baby and just, you know, the way he looked at me was different. It was just like, no, none of that was applied for us. And in fact, I look back at pictures of him when he was, you know, one years old or, um, you know, his birthday and I, I just see things that like, I'm like, no, it wasn't there, it wasn't there. He was so smiley and giggly and looked at the camera and sat perfectly for haircuts and slept and ate. I mean, he was just a dream as a baby that I think when the red flags did start to pop up, It was, it was just more confusing, like, no, it can't be, you know, and um, he wasn't responding to his name at like a year and a half, and it was just, it was just very little things, right, so it really was kind of a gradual process, you know, when it was just one or two signs, especially as a therapist, I'm thinking, okay, I don't think that's enough to like check all the boxes or, or to be enough for a diagnosis. And I was asking people, you know, in birth to three and in early childhood. And I'm like, get me an autism specialist. I want them to take a look at him. I can't, I can't unsee what I see and I can't be unbiased. So I need someone else's opinion, you know? And I felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere because he was in that gray area. Um, he had a good number of words. Like I said, he was kind of still average when he was, um, one and a half. And then when he turned two, I mean, he was combining a few words. And I think when he was like 24 or or 28 months, somewhere around there, he lost one of his two word phrases, just one. (laughs) So instead of like playing um, tag or something and saying that way, that way, he would just say that or he could just say way but he couldn't put it together anymore and so of course that's a red flag you know things like that and then when he and he was a babbler like we called him the mad scientist because it was just babbling nonstop and all these noises you know and you know it's just cute at that age you know but when they're still doing that at three it becomes okay that's it's gone on longer than it should and and what could that be so you know we he was in early childhood when he was three um they didn't diagnose him with autism at that time it was just kind of a significant developmental delay they really weren't thinking autism they said he had a lot of good skills that a lot of children with autism don't have so again just kind of delaying the process for us a little bit in terms of more fuel to my denial fire right Mm-hmm. If someone tells you they don't, well, then they don't. That's it. <laughs> um, you know, and as a therapist, you know autism. You know what it looks like. You know what the future is. So I think that denial is sometimes even stronger because you're worried. You, you've seen it. You, you know, you know, what it could be. Um, and you know it's not bad, but you also just know too much, you know. Um, right. And so when he after we finished early childhood and he wasn't really making a whole lot of progress during that you know year that he was three, we decided to get him a medical diagnosis at the end of that year. And like I said, with the babbling and everything not going away and his language not taking off between that time, that was kind of the last straw for me. I said, if he doesn't, if his language doesn't explode and he doesn't have a lot of phrases coming in, he's not combining them and it's not doubling like it should kind of month after month, by the time he's, you know, over three, then I know something's up. And then, you know, I just kind of knew at that end of early childhood that that's kind of what we would be looking at. Um, and that's when we got the medical diagnosis. And it really hit me at that time, too, because um, when he got his diagnosis, he was a level two, borderline level three. And for me to have at the beginning of that school year, hear someone say, yeah, I don't even know. It's it's very borderline. I don't even know if it might be autism to at the end of that school year in May hearing, you know, a psychologist say, I can't believe that they missed this. This is, I mean, it's, it's almost here, you know, um, mm-hmm. it really hit me hard at that time, you know, and it's, you're just kind of blindsided with that. Um, so when he was four, um, you know, we, we didn't hear a lot of words at that time. What he looked like then, um, you know, he wasn't able to put a lot of words together. And um, it was a heartbreaking time just because we never knew how much we were going to hear from him. You know, mm-hmm. I remember talking him in every night and just wanting to hear him say like, you too. You know, when I'm saying I love you, you know, good night, and just trying to get him to say you too. You know, I knew he could do it, but he just couldn't, you know, and he just wasn't. And there was just a lot of worry at that time of like, what is his life going to look like? What are we ever going to hear from him? Physically, motorically, is he capable of putting together a full sentence? We had no idea, you know, Um, So, compared to now, at eight, he looks a whole lot different, (laughs) you know, we get a lot more glimpse into his personality. He's joking around with us and, you know, he's very aware and we're hearing a lot of scripting, we're hearing a lot of requests, you know, that's, I would say that's most of his language, but he has a voice. and. You know, there was that one point where we didn't know how much of it we would hear and we hear a whole lot of it <laughs> now. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't have the most functional language, but he is definitely learning at this point how to get his needs met, um, you know, so that's really important. And he he uses scripts pretty cleverly, I would say, um, just kind of search through his lexicon of like, OK, what? what movie or what script could I use to let them know how I'm feeling right now? You know, and I feel like he's pretty good at matching that up sometimes Um, or just having those little phrases that, you know, he can communicate with us. He also uses um, GoTalk on an iPad and that's really helpful for him, especially at school and knowing that he can navigate that. And um, he's, he's pretty technology savvy, especially on his iPad with YouTube and games and, you know, it always, I think, surprises even like cousins when they come over to say like, wow, he is really good at that Spongebob game, <laughs> like <laughs> more so than I would think, you know, because you don't hear from a lot of them, you know, you don't hear mm-hmm. them say a lot. So I think um peers and cousins and even his brothers sometimes, I think they, they underestimate him. Like he's got a lot going on and knows what he wants that's another you know big difference of he was a pretty mellow go with the flow guy in those early years like didn't get mad if you know if his brothers took a toy or something he was so chill to the point where it's like you know does he want a whole lot does he have a desire for things like I don't I don't know. You know, it was just, there was so much about him that I felt like we just didn't know. And I felt horrible that I'm like, I feel like I don't even know my child, you know, and how horrible is that? Um, You know, and now it's a different story. You know, he knows what he wants. He, you know, there's more tantrums, but we almost celebrate those, you know, because it's like, he's a man who knows what he wants. That's good, right? Like, (laughs) he has those desires and he's not as easygoing anymore you know if if you make him mad he's a lot more sensitive i feel like he can um he can really sense emotions now and is is pretty sensitive i can't even like yell at his brothers half the time because it upsets him even if i'm not yelling at him you know of course i would never yell at him but (laughs) 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 you know i i distinctly remember when he was little and I would, you know, maybe lose my temper at something that he did. It's like, he doesn't even know I'm mad. He has zero idea. You know how your kids get when mom uses her mom voice and she's really mad and they're like, oh crap. You know, and they kind of like run away and they know they're in trouble. Wyatt never had that. It was just like, mm-hmm. you know, you could be right in his face and he would be like, huh, hey, what's up? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> just oblivious and you're like, don't you even know I'm using my mad mom? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's just completely I, different now that it's just like, oh, buddy, I'm not, I'm not yelling at you, but your brothers.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, R. Jackson also uses scripting um, to get his point across. And it's always so fascinating um, to me what he can store in that memory bank from seeing one time yeah. through a whole movie. Um, And we're trying to like filter through and think between the two of us, my husband and I both. Okay. What was this from? And what episode was that? And what was it about? Because we're trying to make this connection. And I'm like, buddy, I am so sorry that we are always three steps behind, but I promise we're trying to catch up. Yes.
1: Isn't that funny? That's like a game that my husband and I played too, It's just like, we'll hear the same phrase over and over again. And, you know, there might be some articulation things going on, too, where it doesn't sound exactly like, you know, the movie or you can't piece the words together exactly. But when we get it, it's just like, oh, my God, yes, that's what it is. That's what he's saying. It's from that Moana clip. Do, do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Like, we finally figure it out.
0: Like Oh, yeah. And then we celebrate like we just cracked like the world's greatest <laughs> secret. Yeah. 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 We're on
1: the same page now, buddy. And they're probably thinking like, it's about dang time. Like, I've been saying this for how long and you're just getting that now.
0: (laughs) I swear Jackson looks at us like, welcome to the party, everyone. I'm so happy you finally arrived.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Like, I don't know how to be any more clear. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, So, Deidre, what would be your best advice for new parents, someone who may have just received their diagnosis or is just starting to explore speech therapy, whether it be for you know, autism or something else, what do you wish someone would have told you then?
1: You know, that's such a good question. And I was trying to think back to how I felt during those initial moments. and it was just a lot of overwhelm. I felt like there were areas that I knew really well, and but I was so overwhelmed at the areas that I didn't. And I felt like I just had to figure everything out. And I felt like I needed to be his hero. And you know, I was going to do all the research and I was going to do all the things and I was going to save him. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And looking back, it's like, I wish I could just tell myself, you don't need to save him. Um you just need to be his mom. And you need to follow your gut and you know, listen to and and hand it over to the professionals and see what they have to say but then also listen to your child, you know, I mean, see what works for him. Do not second guess yourself as the mom who you know what's going to work for them. You know what's going to be helpful and you're going to be able to tell when something's not as helpful and it's okay to pivot, you know, be like Ross from friends. Pivot, pivot,
2: (laughs) you know,
1: you don't have to stay doing something that isn't working for your kiddo just because everyone else is doing it you know and that's you know another thing i would say is just because your child has autism and susie's kid has autism you know doesn't mean that you need to be looking at what everyone else is doing and what worked for them because it might be completely different for your child and it might not work for them and you know you just take it one day at a time. But in the grand scheme of things, like what they need from you as their parent is no different than any other child. You know, I mean, their favorite things are going to be your connection and your time with them, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. I I agree with you. I wish someone would have told me that because I don't know how I survived in that state of overwhelm for so long because I was. I was running on Um, fumes because I thought I had to figure it all out right now I had a in my mind I had to have him talking by the time he was three and if I didn't have him talking by the time he was three it was game over I had failed I hadn't done my job no one told me that where I came up with that I don't know but I lost sleep and common sense went out the window I was just running on hyperspeed trying to get everything into my brain to try to help him and I wasn't, I don't think I was helping anyone. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and how frustrated they must be some of that time. Like, you know, and you hear it from other families all the time, like, I feel like he is teaching us like, whoa, 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 woman, you gotta slow down. You know, like he's happy and that's what is most important to us. And we're just, you know, we're learning to look at all the things he does have and the things that he can teach us about life you know I mean some of the best things are he's 100% real you know if he opens a present and he's not into it he's not gonna fake it (laughs) he's not gonna fake smile for the pictures and you know it just kind of teaches you to you know have a little bit more fun in life sometimes you know I mean he is a blast and he has such a personality and and he helps me be more real because he's 100% real. There's no faking anything, you know? And it just teaches you what's really important in life, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. And if I knew that back then,
1: I wouldn't have been so worried to try and help him so much and to, you know, I mean, of course, you still need to be there, but I, I just wish I would know that Everything would is is going to shake out.
0: Yeah, I think I think we lived in a state of overwhelm, and I overloaded him mm-hmm. in the process. Yeah. So, Deidre, where can people find you um, to learn more about you and Wyatt and the rest of your family?
1: Um, I do have a Facebook page that I sometimes post on, and that is called "Making the Best of It: Wyatt's Way," um, and you know I haven't written too much on it lately just because things have been going pretty good and I haven't had a whole lot to say you know it's kind of like a an artist who doesn't make songs with when they're not going through a breakup you know I think we uh, we're not always in a good phase but right now we're kind of in a good phase and things are rolling um but yeah that's um where I talk about my guy
0: um, and I think it's a beautiful story on how you ended up with your um, title for your page. Yeah,
1: so um, my grandpa has always been my person. Um, he was a man of few words, but when he did say something, you everyone listened, you know, because he was so wise and um, his sister had a developmental disability and he was so protective of her and he he kind of knew this world. Um, and he passed away before Wyatt was officially diagnosed but he was still around when Wyatt was in that two to three age and it's it's right when I was trying to figure out what was going on and in a very dark and hard part of my life you know that things were just changing and turning upside down and I remember talking to him um, on the phone and it was you know what we would know is probably gonna be his last year. Um, and I just remember saying to him, like, you know, we're going through the diagnosis process and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I just was like, you know, we're just we're just trying to, you know, enjoy him and enjoy everything. And he kind of stopped me and said, Deidre, you, you don't have to enjoy it. You don't think. Um, it's, you know, and I felt like it was his way of saying, like, it's not going to be all roses. It's, it's going to be hard, but you just have to make the best of it. Um, and that is just advice that I take with me every day. You know, I'm just trying to look at the positives and, and make the best of it, dance in the rain, all of the things, you know, and, and why it luckily makes it easy for us to do that a lot of days and, I think, um, I think my grandpa would be pretty proud to see the little man he's turned out to be.
0: I love that so much. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. (sighs) Well, um, Deidre, thank
0: you so much for joining us and it has been such a pleasure and so, um, helpful. I think all of the little Uh, bits of information that you threw in about um, the IEP table and advice for parents are just so valuable. And um, it's been amazing to connect with you. Well, Thank
1: you so much for thinking of me and having me. This was awesome. And I think so highly of you too, as well.
0: Thank you. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that you enjoy and we will be back with you next week.